You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 32. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. My co-host today is Misty Winkler. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. She writes about practical classical homeschooling and organizing attitudes at Simply Convivial. This episode is sponsored by the Afterthinker's Guide to Charlotte Mason's Home Education. That's right, I have a new Charlotte Mason study guide out for 2018. Home Education, Charlotte Mason's seminal work on educational philosophy and character development, is a must-read for every homeschooling parent seeking to nurture her children with the rich nutrients of life and literature. The Afterthinker's Guide to Charlotte Mason's Home Education is a study guide, and it's your key to unlocking these nourishing educational truths in your home. I offer to you a pair of guides for this valuable endeavor, one for group leaders and one for group members. Don't let the different versions fool you. These guides can be used for group or individual study. Go to afterthoughtsblog.net slash home education to get your copy. In today's episode, Misty and I discuss Werner Jaeger's introduction to his three-volume series titled Paideia, the Ideals of Greek Culture. We discuss his definition of education, what he says culture is, why Christians are resistant to honoring the Greeks, and so much more. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our Scalay every day. Yay! (laughs) As a quick reminder, on Instagram, you can now use the hashtag Scalay every day and hashtag Scalay sisters. But Pam, somebody, um, Mr. I... I, right? Um, I, because I will, will. I will. I will share. (laughs) Quick little grammar lesson. (laughs) That was free. Um, We may um, reshare what you have or whatever it's called. Is it called resharing? Regram? Regram. Thank you. I'm still learning. I'm still an Instagram infant. (laughs) I'm an infant gram. So anyway. With that said, Misty, you can describe your scalay every day, but it looks suspiciously like mine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm still in the middle of pretty much every book that I've talked about for the last five recordings, (laughs) except for the one new one is the one that we're going to be talking about today, which I feel is appropriate because I purchased it during a Scalay Sisters podcast recording. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so one of our guests, Eric Hall, mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Paideia, the ideals of Greek culture. 
by Werner Jaeger. So when these arrived, my son Jaeger wanted to know if this is who he was named after. <laughs> that crossed my mind. No, sorry, didn't know about it at that time, but it's a nice, just a nice coincidence. <laughs> but um, I also ordered a notebook and I've started a new commonplace notebook that's specifically for this book, Paideia, and also as I'm reading through the great tradition still. Hmm. It's been about a year and a half, but <laughs> I am not quite halfway through. <laughs> and, you know, I got through to the early church period in the great tradition, which has selections of readings about education from Plato on. And it wasn't until I got to about the early church period that I started seeing the themes that I wanted to pull out, the threads that I wanted to connect, the ideas that I just really wanted to see how often they came up or who says what about different themes. Yeah. And so I started a new notebook and um, I'm going to have one page or one page spread for each person in the great tradition. And so I'm, I'm continuing to move forward, but then going back as well and filling in and revisiting those ancient authors as well. Mm. Mine's similar. I'm looking up and trying to find, I'm trying to find the name of my notebook because I was going to share exactly what notebook I got. Oh, oh yeah. I would be curious. Because the paper's a little thicker. So you can like use watercolors or uh -huh. markers. Yeah. I decided I wanted something extra fun for this project. You know what? I'm not going to waste time looking it up. If anybody's interested in my notebook, I'll put it in the show notes because I'll make sure I have it in front of me when I'm doing the show notes. <laughs> so I can look up what it is. I cannot remember the name. I got it somewhere different. I think I didn't buy it on Amazon if I remember correctly. Okay. So for me, as you said, we're reading this book and I looked it up and I'm pretty sure the first time I ever mentioned Paideia on my blog was 2009. Mm, that's and cool. It's been this, to me, mysterious Greek concept that I've been like, <laughs> sort of, I don't know, I get it in my head that like these things are a little bit magical when I just they sound kind of cool, but I don't know much else about them. <laughs> 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 Basically, when I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> I think I might have first heard of Werner Jaeger's book when I read a couple of Doug Wilson's books on education. And I know he has the book yeah. called The Paideia of God, yes. but I actually think he might have mentioned it in a different book that I re read by him before I read that one. I think he does. Yeah. It's something that he brings up a lot. Uh, I think George Grant was bringing it up a lot at that time. I don't know if that's still a thing with mm -hmm. him. But what fascinated me was first that there was no English equivalent. Like we don't have right. one word that that can be translated into. So that was the first mm -hmm. thing that was so interesting to me because, you know, it's that whole thing of like, you can't even think about something if you don't have a name for it. Have word. Yeah. And so it's like, wow, this is a whole concept we don't even have, which was so interesting. And then to find out that in Ephesians 6, 4, that's what's commanded of parents. And it's right. like, it's a very specific thing and it's a very Greek thing, but that's where, you know, Doug Wilson gets his title. It's not just paideia. It's the paideia of God. So it's redefined even in that moment or reframed, I guess might be a better word for it. That's been this little thing tickling my curiosity all of these years. Anytime I read anything that mentions paideia, 
I read it twice. (laughs) And so (laughs) what's interesting, though, is every single time Yeager's book is what's referenced. If you want to understand Paideia, you have to read it. So I would go every time and I would look it up and it would be like $50. And that was just for one of the three volumes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm trying to imagine... Telling my husband, I just spent $150 on books because I'm really fascinated by this Greek concept and what his response would be. So, so Eric brought it up and I did not know you were shopping. So you actually bought the books I wanted because Misty got a three volume set from Miss Fancy Pants. But I did find an inexpensive first volume. It was like $18, which was the cheapest I had ever seen it. And it was actually in really good condition. It was not, it had a tiny bit of underlining, but it was in pencil. So I just erased it. So it's fresh for me. Nice. And I just thought, okay, this is just going to be my thing. I'm not going to let myself buy the next one until I finish the first one. And so I'll just kind of make myself get through it. Not that it's going to take much doing now that we've read the first part. I'm like, oh, I love this. (laughs) So my notebook is because I started thinking, I'm going to want to process this so much that it's going to take over my normal commonplace. It's going to become, that will become the whole thing. So I'm calling my notebook the Paideia Project because my goal is to come to understand Paideia to the point where I could articulate it in a fairly short amount of time. I have a passing understanding of it already, but it would take me like 30 minutes. Yeah. So, so you you're to think it through until you have the elevator pitch exactly. for Paideia. Exactly. So I want I want that's, a, that's my goal for 2018. You know, people choose a word. I'm like this. Is, it's, it's not my word because I don't usually do that, but it's like my it's my thing. I'm going to explore the idea. I'm going to explore this year is Paideia. So I have a that's special cool. notebook, and in case I'm feeling creative, I can actually use markers and watercolors in my notebook. <laughs> that just blows my mind. I don't even. I don't even. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Although I do have colored Stedler pens now. So. Oh, see, that's what sucked me into color, really. Because I had some other things. Do you mean watercolor is next? That's like the first step. Then comes watercolors in your commonplace. Well, I think I did brush pens as an intermediary step. Oh, okay. So far, my watercoloring is not fancy at all. But it'll be things like I might just kind of create a background for different things. Like it's kind of like almost like as a way of highlighting certain areas of the page to kind of give them some separation. Right. Maybe. Okay. I I don't know if that makes sense. So it's it kind of turns into more of like a scrapbook, but I am not a sticker person. Anything that maybe would someone would do with a sticker I'm doing with like markers and brush pens and that kind of thing. Okay. It could be all in black micron pen by the time we're done. <laughs> I may lose steam. <laughs> so, but for now, I like to think it's going to also be pretty when I'm done. <laughs> but I forgive you for buying the books that I wanted. Thank you. I mean, I admit I was looking at them and thinking, I have to get this quick. Because <laughs> I bet Brandy is going to come on after the podcast is over. So I will get them while the podcast is being recorded. <laughs> it's true. I turned off the recording and I went on Amazon. I'm like, wow, this is a really nice, reasonably priced set. And then I like went to put it in my cart and it was gone. And I got on Voxer and I'm like, Misty. 
<laughs> what just happened right here? <laughs> uh, so that just means that we both have them and we're both going to talk about them together. Exactly. It's going to be fun. So I guess as we move into our topical discussion, then we can say what we're going to be doing this year because we have a little... I guess it's like a bonus project for the Scalay Sisters Forum. So you want to explain it? Bonus plus accountability for yeah, us. Totally. So that's, or at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> so we are going to record a book discussion on each chapter as we go through and put the recording into the forum for forum members so that this this discussion of Paideia doesn't take over the podcast. Yeah. But remains consistent, at least for the two of us in our reading. So we thought that would be fun. It won't be as edited or polished as a podcast, but it'll be more like listening in on a book club talk. Yes. So our readers can now go buy out all the Paideia. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking if we post it in there as a bonus, then there, I mean, there can be a comments thread for people who want to read. Oh, them. yeah. It could totally do that. But I felt like that was easier than trying to run a book club on the forum. It could just be kind mm-hmm. of an ongoing discussion. So if a year from now, someone finds a copy of a book they can afford because <laughs> it's so expensive, <laughs> they can read it and interact on that post and it'll just still be there. Right. And it's a lot more fun to actually talk about it than type it all out. Yes, I think so too. And as I was telling you, I mean, it'd be fun to make that, you know, all those different episodes of Scalay Sisters, but I was afraid it would become like the Paideia Princesses. <laughs> And we're not the princess type, Misty. <laughs> well, there we go. I was scrambling for a P word for sisters, and you beat, you beat me to it. I didn't, I didn't go there. Well, I was like, Puella is Latin, but Paideia is Greek, so that's, that's just kind of funny. So. <laughs> oh, my. So. We were trying to decide on the title of this thing. And so it's all Greek to us, basically. Yes. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Really quick, I did want to read his definition of education before we get into the meat of the show. It wasn't exactly what I expected him to say. I mean, not that I think it's wrong. Yeah. I don't know why, but I expected it to be more fancy. (laughs) (laughs) But he just says, Education is the process by which a community preserves and transmits its physical and intellectual character. Makes total sense. And then later, he, um, you know, as a Charlotte Mason person, I got my head turned by this part. He says, men can transmit their social and intellectual nature. So basically, men can educate, right? Only by Mm -hmm. exercising the qualities through which they created it, reason and conscious will. And of course, you know, that's two of Charlotte Mason's 20 principles. (laughs) the way of the reason and the way of the will. (laughs) So I was like, oh, that is just so interesting that he thinks without reason and will, education can't even take place. That transmission isn't going to happen. And so we could very easily devolve into a conversation about (laughs) modern education in light of that. (laughs) Well, and so the education is happening because the reason and will are being exercised but also what they're transmitting, the culture, Mm -hmm. which is the loose word for paideia, was created by reason and will. Right. It's all wrapped up tightly in there. Which really incorporates the purpose of Scalay Sisters into it because 
if you're the teacher, you're the midway point. You're taking what's been created and then you're trying to transmit it or cause it to be transmitted. We're not necessarily always the actual way that comes to someone. So we're standing there in the middle. And so what does that person also need? Reason and will (laughs) ourselves, that continuing (laughs) education, that continuing discipline, and just all kind of tied it together. Mm -hmm. So I know, Misty, you said you wanted to talk about not being embarrassed that classical education is Greek. (laughs) And it's true. I have had some conversations with people where I start to feel like I need to apologize for the Greeks, which is always strange to me because they're pretty universally acknowledged as one of the greatest cultures ever invented by man, if not the greatest, but at least one of the greatest. And yet, Mm -hmm. actually, I think it's my own ignorance. I know all these people, all these great people, and even in American history have said the Greeks were great, but I don't know enough about the Greeks to defend them. So then I'm just embarrassed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, or even doubtful. What are some of the things people have said against Greek, you know, ideas or really the Greeks invented philosophy, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. They were the first philosophers. Education especially in Jaeger's definitions and idea here, is that education is born out of philosophy and culture is born out of philosophy. So all these things are really essentially Greek, as is the Western world. And I mean, a lot of people are embarrassed to even be a part of the Western world. Or, you know, we have universities where you can't have Western civ classes anymore. You know, it has to be world history. And actually, uh, especially since I'm in the middle, almost done with what's completed in Susan Wise Bauer's History of the World Mm. book. Right now, I thought that was, this is a side note, so it's probably irrelevant, but it made me laugh (laughs) because he says here somewhere that writing a history of the whole world is, (laughs) shouldn't be done. Oh, right. (laughs) His views on history were interesting to me. So he says, our history still begins with the Greeks. And we always return to Greece, the Western world, returns to Greece because it fulfills some need of our own life, although the need might be different at different epochs. Hmm. So much of what he said in the history section is so politically incorrect. Yes. That I had to check the date because I was like, how old is this book? Not because I disagreed with him. But yeah, to have... How, mu- how much guts did it take him to write it down? <laughs> right. And then I realized the first edition was in 1939. So not as much as I thought. For some reason, I thought he was writing in the 50s. Yeah. Well, I think it said the fourth edition came out in the sixth, fourth printing, 1962. Okay. And see, I have a second edition. So mine doesn't even have those dates in it. Okay. But, you know, that means in the 60s, they were still printing this, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so he was writing it in the 30s and he's German. Mm, true. So printed in the United States, mine says. But the preface of mine, so I don't know if I have, I have the fourth edition. Oh. And there's a preface to each translation first. My last preface is 1945 in mine. Uh, Actually, mine also. Oh, too bad. Second edition. Oh, okay. So this is a second edition, but the front says the fourth printing. Oh, okay. I see. So the first preface here is 1933, and then there was a second German edition and a second English edition, where he says that he ventured to write the new notes that he added in English instead of writing them in German and having them translated. 
we maybe should have looked up some biographical information. <laughs> this is an interesting time to be a German. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, I, I know part of me was like, I wonder if he was even in Germany because so many of the, okay, I'm looking them up. Okay, better look him up. I meant to before we started. I, another interesting thing that I noted was that the translator is Gilbert Hyatt. Yes, I saw that. I was amazed. Yeah, who has an excellent book called The Art of Teaching, which is one of my favorite books. Ah, okay, here you go. Jaeger remained in Berlin until 1936. That year, he immigrated to the United States because he was unhappy with the rise of National Socialism. Okay. He expressed his veiled disapproval in 1937 with his humanist talks and lectures and his book on Demosthenes based on his blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's going up. So when he came here, he became a professor here instead of there. He was a well-known classicist. So it says he worked as a full professor at University of Chicago, and then he moved to Harvard, and he stayed in Cambridge, Massachusetts until his death. Interesting. Which was probably smart because the Nazis probably would have... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> done away with him. So he would not have been popular. Right. Pointing to a non Aryan race is the root of culture. <laughs> Ooh. Um, <laughs> you know, his preface, though, you made me turn back to the preface and um, I had underlined something and then I had forgotten about it. And it says, even today, it is impossible to have any educational purpose or knowledge without a thorough and fundamental comprehension of Greek culture. Yeah. I don't know if I 100% agree with him, but it was a very strong statement in terms of the kind of value that he places on the Greeks, you know, not mm-hmm. not just as something in the past to which we should be grateful, but something that we should actually know about presently in order to improve the present. I mean, it's just he's he's making a much yes. stronger statement than just like well, yeah, the Greeks were great, you know, pat them on the head (laughs) and move on. Well, that's why I think even a lot of the people who are maybe nervous about going back to the Greeks don't realize how much all that we have now is rooted in them. Sure, we could say, well, let's go back to the founding of the United States, or let's go back to maybe the monastery schools or, you know, whatever other point in history, which people say, let's go back to that for our model. You say, well, but they went back to something when they started. And what did they go back to? They went back to the Greeks. And what were they teaching? Well, what they were teaching was drawing heavily on what the Greeks handed down. So even if we Mm -hmm. are going back to some other earlier point in the development of Western thought and education, Really, it's all coming from this dream that started with the Greeks, whether whether you like it or not. Right. What did he say? I typed in a quote here. Um, little 13 with the Roman numerals. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's see. He says, throughout history, whenever this conception reappears, and by that he means, well, let me see, education as culture and ideas-based education, because he's kind of talking about I mean, we would call it norms probably more since we're familiar with norms yeah, and nobility. Was, there were a lot of connections to the yeah. norms and nobility first chapter. Yes, here. for sure. Which I do think, if I remember right, he quoted Jaeger at one point. Yeah. I think I remember that. Mm-hmm. Throughout history, whenever this conception reappears, it is always inherited from the Greeks. And it always reappears when man abandons the idea of training the young like animals to perform certain definite external duties 
and recollects the true essence mm-hmm. of education. Yeah. See, we don't realize that it's always a renaissance, right? Right. <laughs> like, like every time there's this going back to the Greeks. I was trying to think of different, you know, examples where that wasn't happening. And I really couldn't come <laughs> up with one. I, which might just prove my well, own I ignorance. I made a but. connection here to a quote. Well, it's a quote that is quoted in Sophie's world, which is I'm about halfway through. In the philosophy lessons that Sophie is being given here, the lesson quotes Goethe. So immediately I'm in mm. and <laughs> says, sometime I'm going to have to actually read some Goethe and not just quotes, but. He who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. Wow. So that means the Greeks, basically. Right? You know. That means I am below middle class. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not quite poverty level, but. (laughs) Right. I'm not living on the streets, but. (laughs) But man. Because I feel the bulk of my knowledge only goes back like. 100 years, 120 years. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not, it's not that much. It's really not that much. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah. I forgot you were reading Sophie's World. I feel like you're cheating. I, I did, too, <laughs> when I was reading this. I'm like, oh, ooh, I, I have three things marked in Sophie's World. <laughs> like, this made a connection. <laughs> so this, because this is the end of a lesson here on philosophy. It says, I don't want you to end up in such a sad state. I will do what I can to equate you with your historical roots. It is the only way to become a human being, which tied into the introduction in Paideia, which is all about how the Greeks were interested in forming real human beings. Just, it's like, oh, this is a concept that classical educators are using. Like, mm-hmm. Here it is. This is. This is why this keeps coming back to this. Oh, so it's the only way to become a human being. It is the only way to avoid floating in a vacuum. Hmm. In the very back of my mind, that reminded me of something C.S. Lewis said, but I can't think of what it is. Oh, yeah. But something about that had like a C.S. Lewis feel to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) His probably just concept of needing to read old books and just needing to have a depth of something to draw on. And hmm, that's interesting. So I'm trying to think about, you know, why... Why can we get into these situations where we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we actually like the Greeks. You know what I mean? Like, why do I feel like I need to apologize for them or something? And first, I'll meet Christians who are very firmly like, but they were pagan. Right. The Bible is the only rule of Christian life and mm-hmm. something like yeah. that. Well, and I, I, for some reason, when someone says that to me, well, the Greeks were pagan. My first thought is always like, yeah, Dante did put them in the first circle of hell. And then from there, it's just like nothing nothing good is happening (laughs) because I just granted the point. (laughs) (laughs) um, He doesn't even get to Plato until his second volume or at least. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's what I took away from what I've read so far, because I've read a tiny bit into the first chapter as well, because. I started reading it and I got about halfway through. And then I, that's when I contacted you and said, I think we should talk before I read too much. <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly where I got that. It might've even been in the preface. Like it might've not taken me that long. But for some reason, I got this impression that this is, I mean, he's going to have some people. So he's going to have Homer, but then he's going to go through 
Salon and mm-hmm. Aegeus and Euripides, right. Aristophanes. Thuc- the he ends with Thucydides. He talks about the sophists, it looks like, but I mean, there's no, you know, Plato, Aristotle, like the the high point of philosophy for them is actually volume two. Okay. I had never really thought about the pre-Socratic Greeks having a whole lot to say about education. And now I think this book, I mean, he is clearly talking about education and paideia is related to education, but education isn't Jaeger's primary subject in these volumes. You think? I don't know. You know, but uh, well, I, um, how do I put this? Yes. Yes and no. Because I think he's, I mean, partly this is a history. Yes. Okay. That's true. But it, so it's going through all of Greek culture, but he's saying that the Greeks were in intentional. They were, they saw everything as applying. Like he says, I don't know, in that section on history, he say we're doing history wrong. It shouldn't just be what the people were doing and saying, but how it applies to us. So it's like applied history, which is going to be education, but it's it's an entire history of the Greeks. So it makes sense that it starts with the very early Greeks. True. Um, so I, I'm thinking at least this first volume, it's called Paideia, the Ideals of Greek Culture. And Paideia hmm, includes what we think of as education, but isn't limited to it. And I'm trying, I'm going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Is it that that's what they meant by education? And we just have like this little truncated version that we call it. You know what I mean? Right. Is it that, or is it that there's something other than education that we need and we need to just call it Paideia because, because that's what it is. I don't know. So I'm going back and forth in my mind about that. But anyway, because he's saying that education is this transmission of these ideals, really. It's the twist, the transmission of the physical and intellectual character of the community. Mm-hmm. Then I think you're I think you're right. I, I'm gonna have to concede the point that probably it's more about what that physical and intellectual character was. But then it's called Paideia, which is I think the transmission. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, we haven't read right. enough of it probably to really know. Yeah, it's bigger. The thing is, it's bigger than what our word education means. Right. Yes. And it is this entire view of this society's whole idea. Right. I had this moment where I was like, is the closest, and I've had this thought before, but I had it again when I was reading it, is the closest thing we have to Paideia that I can think of at least, Charlotte Mason's three tools of education used all together. So it's mm-hmm. atmosphere, discipline, and life, which life would be, you know, the actual bookwork. Like what we think of as like the formal learning is all encompassed in life, that transmission of ideas. But she's got two other tools. I don't know. That's one of my things that I'm going to do in my notebook is to try to figure out, right. is there something, because I want to know if there is, is there something else outside of those three tools that we're missing? Or is everything actually kind of in there if you flesh them out enough and think about them rightly? So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I mean, just pulling on the summary of the idea from, you know, Doug Wilson's treatment of Mm -hmm. the subject, it seems like maybe it's kind of a broader idea of atmosphere. Because I know he says that, you know, what's in Paideia is like everything the student encounters in his whole life. So if you put it in a more modern context, it would be 
what's on the billboards as you're driving down the street. Right. Everything that's formative, which is basically everything he encounters. Yeah. Yeah, I remember him talking about that. The walk to school, not just being at school, but the actual walk to school. Right. And everything he encountered on that way would be part of the paideia that was forming him. Mm-hmm. Well, so just summarize it, because one of the things that he's saying in this section, in this introduction, is that the Greeks were aware of a standard and an ideal and natural law, and they wanted everything to conform to the law, to the natural principles that they could discover to their ideal and so they were working at, you know, working this harmony in their culture, their society, their political structure, their family structure. Like they wanted all of it to work together into this culmination of, you know, a complete human being. So it wasn't just preparing a person for a job or a role in society. And he also distinguishes it with other ancient cultures and saying it's not the elevation of one super monarch to the subjugation of the masses, but each individual within a society can be built up for the society. Elevate the whole society. Right. You elevate the whole society. Right. It's not, it's also in contrast to the modern idea of independence, individual autonomy, where the society is kind of there for the protection of the individual it's different from that too. Well, what's another thing with the Greeks that we apologize for? And it, it's that kind of thing, this serving of the state, you know, which I, I think they define state a little differently than us. Because when I think of like, I'm serving the state, I mean, I think of the government, you know what I'm saying? And like, mm-hmm. I don't think it was just that because, you know, Plutarch often details people who were serving the state by not serving the government. <laughs> Um, you know, right, right. There were some really great Greeks that were great because they had rebelled in some way against the actual government of their people. So, you know, it's kind of the way I feel about certain parts of Charlotte Mason, where she starts to talk about citizenship in a way where I've kind of excused it as like, well, she was British and she's a subject. And I'm American and I'm a citizen and there's a difference. But she starts to talk about the parents have the children for the good of the state. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and I think that's our American response to that kind of thing from Charlotte Mason is very similar to that kind of thing when, I mean, everything from outrageous things, like when Plato's taking all the children over the age of seven from their parents Mm -hmm. to simple things like them acting like we exist for the purpose of the state. Like all those things make us uncomfortable because of our rugged American individualism, I think. Right. Which I don't think necessarily makes them right and us wrong or vice versa. But I think that's where maybe some of that embarrassed feeling comes from. Mm -hmm. I'm taking some ideas from them, but at the same time, gosh, they make me uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They definitely have different ideas about individual and state. And so Mm -hmm. that'll be really interesting as we go through the book, because I think that that's going to be fleshed out. Yeah, I think so. And who knows, maybe we'll be more comfortable with it mm, coming to an understanding. You know, it's kind of like we agree to disagree. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or even not even have to say that they were right and we were wrong or we are right or they're wrong, but we're bringing these different pieces, different societies and different, I don't know, it's 
used in this introduction, epochs of time have different emphases. And to be aware of that, I think, is part of what it is to bring that historical awareness to bear or that C.S. Lewis thought on why we read old books. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because we we have the the assumptions that we're swimming in that we aren't even aware of until we bump up against something that has different assumptions. Right. Sometimes the epitome of diversity in education is reading a really old book. Mm Mm-hmm. Even if we're like, well, I read something, you know, I'm a libertarian and I read something by a Democrat or whatever. We all still live in the same atmosphere. We all still swim Mm -hmm. through the same media pool. And there's just certain assumptions that we both grant. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm interacting with these quote unquote foreign ideas or ideas I disagree with or whatever. And yet... It's so incredibly different to read about something like the Greeks, where the mentality is just, it's just foreign. It's just a foreign mentality. <laughs> There's no way around mm-hmm. it. Right. It's, it's foreign. And at the same time, it's where our idea came from. Yes. The American ideal wouldn't be here if it hadn't been born in Greece first. And that's kind of what this introduction is saying. Right. Even though it's worlds apart, it follows a direct line. And you can be traced. Yeah. You know, what he said about, you know, how our relationship to the Greeks is different from our relationship to, I mean, I'm looking at the list right here, Chinese, Indian, Babylonian, Jewish, or Egyptian culture. You know, he's naming all these different cultures. And I have never thought about that before, about how we can go back and read the Greeks. And even though they're foreign, there's a sense in which we find our great grandfather. (laughs) That doesn't happen Mm -hmm. when we're reading. You know, in Indian history might really be interesting, but unless I'm an Indian immigrant living in America or something, I'm not going to find my great grandfather when I read about them the way I do with mm-hmm. the Greeks, because it's true. Like they make me uncomfortable in some ways. And yet we're talking about, well, we're going to educate according to natural laws that govern human nature. I'm like, amen. <laughs> you know, right. Where each person matters and where there is an ideal. And I think that's where, you know, coming back to the idea, which I think is the most common, that we shouldn't look back to the Greeks because they were pagan and we want a Christian education. So Christian education does not have to draw on the Greeks. And if it does, then, you know, it's not being Christian, which, you know, makes sense on a kind of a logical, you can make a a argument that sounds logical. Mm -hmm. But if you step back and look at the history That's not the way things unfolded. And the way things unfolded is that God was preparing the Jews for the Messiah. He gave them the law and Jesus came as the fulfillment of their law and he was born a Jew, but he was born into the Greco-Roman world and society. And it was God who sent the Israelites into captivity because They didn't have very much time where they kept it together, (laughs) hardly any, hardly at all. Did they follow the law and do what they were supposed to do and have the nation they were supposed to have? Have you ever tried to map that out? Yeah. It's shocking. I'll meet Christians who are like, we just need to hearken back to the Hebrews. And I'm like, are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever actually mapped that out? Because they were overwhelmingly a disaster. 90% 90% of the time. Overwhelmingly. You know, when, when we talk about saved by grace, yeah, <laughs> it Ooh. was really nothing. <laughs> that they- I know. Well, I just finished Second Kings. And so, which is it? Josiah. 
right? The what they rediscovered the law. Mm-hmm. They read the law, and you know, he, sackcloth and ashes because they realize we have not been doing any of this. But it says so. He started. He reinstituted the Passover, which had not been practiced since the time of the judges. Right. So not even David were they doing the Passover, which was commanded. Right. And we think of <laughs> David as like the high point. You know, everything was just great under David is kind of, at least I remember looking back that way when I was a child, especially like how it was presented in Sunday school. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That little comment tells us a lot about the kind of education the Hebrews were doing. Because if education is the transmission of their culture, they really weren't doing it. They weren't transmitting the culture they were given from God anyway. They were transmitting Mm -hmm. something. And hence, there was always the worship of the false gods. Right. So the Greeks were pagan, but so were the Hebrews. That's the thing. (laughs) That's the thing we always forget. Like there's always a remnant, but the vast majority of the Hebrews were just as pagan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And God was preparing them for a Messiah. And, you know, they did get their act together, right? In the intertestamental period, they had their thing that they were passing down and they were doing that stuff. But that's the intertestamental period which is where the school of the Pharisees was formed. And Jesus comes into the world and says, uh, you got this all wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> so but they finally got the law thing down. <laughs> they got the law thing down. They were educating. <laughs> they were passing on their culture. And Jesus says, no, no, actually, this is not what I meant. <laughs> right. Yeah. But he comes into the Greco-Roman world and the New Testament is just full of references to Greek ideas. Well, it is written in Greek. (laughs) It's written in Greek, but even like saying Jesus is the Logos. Right. That's a Greek concept, not a Hebraic concept. So it's saying, all right, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of what the Gentiles have been seeking. Both. God was preparing the Jews, but God was also preparing the Gentiles because this was his plan all along for the kingdom of God to be all kingdoms, all nations. So I think this development of Greek culture here, which just is pages and pages here in this introduction about how it was special, I believe that the Greeks were being prepared providentially for the coming of Jesus and for Christendom. Right. (laughs) So I think it's totally okay to claim it. And that's why the early church fathers did claim it. Right. Obviously, even though the Hebrews messed up a lot, I mean, the Old Testament is part of our Bible for a reason. Mm -hmm. But um, how do I put this? But so much of what happened in the New Testament also comes from being in the Greek empire. I mean, even the Mm -hmm. Romans, I mean, he talks about that a little bit in the preface, if I remember correctly. The Romans were who they were because of of the Greeks. (laughs) Right. You know, I teach Plutarch at a co-op and we just finished reading Marcus Cato, the censor. And Marcus Cato went through a period of time where he was really into Greek philosophy and studying it and all this kind of stuff. But then I don't know what happened. Yeah, he, He lived to be a fairly old man. He didn't like die in battle or anything like that. And so then he kind of moves on with his life and gets into farming and different things. And then all of a sudden, Greek philosophy when he's an old man, becomes kind of like a a fad. And Mm -hmm. he gets really concerned. And it's hard to say why. I mean, because it's all speculation, right? Like nobody's actually in his brain. 
But it seemed to be like maybe he was afraid that the Romans were going to lose their own culture. Because hmm. that seemed to be an ongoing concern that he had. He would criticize different people for different things. And it was like, well, we're going to lose who we are if you do that. But Plutarch is very quick to say how wrong Cato was. And he said, like, hmm. Cato was very concerned that if they adopted Greek learning, all these things would fall apart. And he basically says, Rome was great. <laughs> this, is, this is my paraphrase. So it's not the, this is not the exact mm-hmm. word. But basically what he's saying is Cato couldn't have been more wrong. Everything that became great about Rome was because of this adoption of Greek learning. And he mm-hmm. just corrects him. Here's a guy who loves his people, feels very protective of them, and has a problem with Greek learning, but he can't foresee the future. And long after he's gone, the adoption of those things was actually bearing fruit in his culture in amazing ways. And then, of course, that's the world Jesus was born into. That's the world the New Testament was written in. That's the language of the New Testament. And like you said, concepts like the Logos, like Paideia, (laughs) they're all in there. Mm -hmm. And they're embedded in that language. There is no English equivalent, as we talked about. So, Right. So is that the point in time where Jaeger points out here, the Greek critics who lived at the beginning of the Roman Empire were the first to describe the masterpieces of the Great Age of Greece as classical in the timeless sense, that is in the sense of being timeless? Oh, I guess I don't know. I mean, I don't remember. I don't remember. Well, he was definitely a critic. I mean, he's also the guy that's like, Carthage should be destroyed. Like he ended at the end of his life. He ended every, every speech, right. no matter what it was about. <laughs> and now that I know he was old, that makes me laugh so much. He's just <laughs> this grumpy old guy who has his pet thing. They did destroy Carthage shortly after he died, but <laughs> can't you just see him? Like the old guy from up or something. Carthage should be destroyed. So anyway, um, all of that to say, I don't remember in Plutarch's life of Cato them calling the learning classical, but that doesn't right. mean, right? you know, that wasn't his era. He died, we think, in 149 BC. Hmm. So he was a Roman senator, and I don't remember exactly when Rome proper began, but... Yeah, I just thought it was interesting there that even the Romans were calling Greek culture classical. Yeah, me too. I think I thought that happened way later. So here's my other Sophie's World quote. Mm, okay. That is, Aristotle goes only part of the way because he doesn't know of the Christian revelation. But going only part of the way is not the same thing as going the wrong way. Oh, I like that. That reminds me of C.S. Lewis, too, because he talked about, like, if you're going the wrong way, the most progressive man is the one who turns back first. Hmm. When we think of history rolling out in terms of progress, according to Lewis, progress is only progress if we're moving in the right direction. So in any culture, then, to the extent which they moved in the right direction and had the right trajectory, they were making progress. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, Charlotte Mason's great recognition, which was related to the fresco we talked about with Eric Hall, who started this whole mess in the first place. I mean, that helped me a lot. Such a Christian view of everything where, you know, we have the Holy Spirit at the top. I'll post it in the show notes again in case anybody actually, if anybody missed that episode, they should just go listen to it anyway. But, you know, we're getting down to the bottom and we have all these pagans on one side and, you know, Charlotte Mason saying basically truth is truth. 
It doesn't matter who it mm-hmm. came through. It matters if it's true. And I think with this book, one of the things I walked away feeling from the introduction was now I can get past talking about who the Greeks were in terms of they were pagans, they were not paying their blow, you know, whatever, and start interacting mm-hmm. with the actual ideas. Do I agree with this idea or not? Which is a different level of interaction than some of the other interactions I feel like yeah. had in the past. So, right. Because it's not like they're all roses and candy canes or something, but. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that reminded me, this might be neither here nor there at this point, but um, David Hicks a little bit because, you know, he talks about virtue and then he talks about how he seems to define classical education as transmission or formation of the virtuous man. Mm -hmm. And so he was saying, like, within the classical tradition, we can debate over what virtue is. We can debate over how it is formed. But when you go outside of that and say it can't, be formed, then you're outside of the tradition. So he has a lot of room for diversity and conversation and all that within what's, what he still comfortably calls the classical tradition. And I found something similar, and I won't tell you the page since we think our pages don't match up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting. He said it would be a most dangerous misconception of what we have described as the Greek will to shape individual character on an ideal standard if we imagined that the standard was ever fixed and final. Yes. So maybe that is how the Christians are able to adopt it. Why it could actually be, I'm trying to remember what I said about Ephesians 6, 4. Oh, I called it reframing. So paideia becomes the paideia of God. And that is what the Christians are doing. They're not just doing paideia. But maybe that's what even allows the possibility of that kind of reframing is that it's never been just one thing. It's never been a set in stone set of ideals. It's been more of the idea that there is an ideal we should be seeking. Right. And so it's like Christianity can come alongside that and not say, oh, we'll try to be like your ideal man. It says, oh, you were looking for an ideal man. You can meet him. <laughs> His name <laughs> <Right>. is Jesus. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It leaves room for the definition of the ideal because they were always refining Mm -hmm. their definition of the ideal. With Christianity, though, we have the last definition, the final definition. Now, we might not always understand it properly, but in Christ, you know, we're told we have the logos, so we have the ideal. Right. So I think it's on that same page up above it. True Greek paideia starts from the ideal, not from the individual. Above man as a member of the horde and man as a supposedly independent personality stands man as an ideal. And that ideal was the pattern towards which Greek educators, as well as Greek poets, artists, and philosophers always looked. But what is the ideal man? It is the universally valid model of humanity, which all individuals are bound to imitate. Hmm. And I think right there, I mean, that is where you see Jesus and the New Testament coming in and fulfilling this idea, because not only is Jesus the ideal man, fully God and fully man and sinless, but also we are told in the New Testament to imitate him. So Mm -hmm. what I see here is that even that is drawing on concepts that you know, and it was written to the Gentiles who were Greeks. Mm-hmm. You know, this was something they would have completely resonated with. This was drawing on their culture and further developing those categories they already had. 
Right. I see also here why Christ could be called a stumbling block, because both the Jews and the Gentiles in that day had something that they defined as the ideal type, Mm -hmm. and it didn't match up Mm -hmm. with who Christ actually was when he came Mm -hmm. and the kind of life that he lived. And, you know, I'm thinking about how the Jews were expecting a conquering king, you know, and instead they got a suffering servant that was very different. And I'm sure there were things like that that the Greeks would have expected of someone who embodied the ideal type. Right. So at the same time that it draws on it, I can also see how different people groups were also pushed away. They were repelled because the redefinition wouldn't have been to their liking, maybe. Yeah. Let's see. I'm going to look it up. Does it say foolishness to the Greeks? And a stumbling block to the Jews? Is that how yeah, that goes? I, I think so. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Hmm. Yeah. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. Hmm. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hmm. And I wonder if even that phrase draws upon the Jew Greek, both the power of God, just what the Jews wanted power mm-hmm. over the Romans, and the Greeks wanted wisdom. You know, they were philosophy right. wisdom loving. Oh, wow, that's really beautiful. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The most concise definition of paideia I found, it was actually right before what you just read. He said, by discovering man, the Greeks realized the universal laws of human nature. And he starts to talk about humanism. He says that the word humanism comes from humanitas. And he explains that humanitas meant the process of educating man into his true form, the real and genuine human nature. That is the true Greek paideia. And I thought, that is just so beautiful. Here we have the paideia just basically trying to elevate man in a way that's really only possible with Christ when we think about what this what these words mean. Mm-hmm. But this idea that we're gonna we're going to bring out what he's supposed to be, elevating man to his true form. So they were trying to it almost seems like they were trying to see past this fractured, fallen nature of man and discover what he was intended to be and move in that direction to the best of their abilities. Yes. Yes. And along similar lines, I think the page before that, they were the first to recognize that education means deliberately molding human character in accordance with an ideal. Mm. I love that. (laughs) Only this type of education deserves the name of culture. And culture is kind of the closest word that we have for paideia in English. And where was the section where he talks about what culture really means as opposed to the watered down way that we currently use it? Um, oh, I think I have it, actually. We are accustomed to use the word culture not to describe the ideal, which only the Hellenocentric world possesses, but in a much more trivial and general sense to denote something inherent in every nation of the world, even the most primitive. We use it for the entire complex of all the ways and expressions of life which characterize any one nation. Thus, the word has sunk to mean a simple anthropological concept, not a concept of value, a consciously pursued ideal. So he's basically saying we diluted the word to the point where it's meaningless because to him, culture is, as you said, this pursuit of the ideal Right. And then I like, 
None of these nations. So in this vague sense, it's permissible to talk of Chinese, Indian, Babylonian, Jewish, or Egyptian culture, although none of these nations has a word or an ideal which corresponds to real culture. Fascinating. Yeah. And of course, real culture, he means this idea of paideia, where you're consciously trying to shape society toward an ideal. Of course, every highly organized nation has an educational system, but they are all fundamentally and essentially different from the Greek ideal of culture. I have to say, when I read that, I was like, man, I am so ignorant of all the cultures he just listed that I I can't even evaluate his statement. (laughs) (laughs) I know. <laughs> and I have to admit, even after listening to the Susan Wise Bauer history of the world, you know, I listened to the whole one on ancient world, but the sections that are on the Babylonian, the Chinese, and uh, there's a section on the Koreans too, but it took me until the book was almost done before I wrote, because they had a different word, you know, a different name back then. It took me a while. To say, oh, oh, how funny. This is Korea. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> It was so hard to just even keep the thread going. Yeah. I I just didn't even try, actually. I just basically, okay, the big picture is that all the cultures were messed up and just trying to be, it's bad to be king because you're probably going to be killed. I don't, that's that's about (laughs) the big, that was the big takeaway. (laughs) Why do you even want to be king? Someone will kill you. (laughs) So... No Paideia princess then, huh? No royalty for you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll stick with Scully, sister. Yeah. There you go. Oh, there was so much in this. I mean, his his thoughts on culture were a whole story in themselves, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose we should wrap this up. I thought I found a good quote to end on. Oh, good. That's what I was just going to look for. (laughs) I starred one and wrote hope next to it. (laughs) Mm. This is inevitably toward the end of a historical period when thought and custom have petrified into rigidity and when the elaborate machinery of civilization opposes and represses man's heroic qualities, life stirs again beneath the hard crust. Hmm. I like that. So we do not despair. Nope. Maybe we are... The life stirring beneath the hard crust. Hmm. I like that a lot. (laughs) Okay. So that's the end of this episode. And if you want to hear more conversation about this book, you're going to have to join the forum or visit the forum because that's where we're going to be putting most of the installments. But I did, I did tell you, Misty, we may come up with some topics we want to discuss as we're doing this. Yes. And so we'll maybe plan some later Even if it's not this season, you know, like next season, maybe we could add some topics that will be interesting based upon our reading of this book to the schedule and maybe even have Eric back on. Yeah. We got a lot of notes about him. (laughs) I think because people looked him up hoping they could hear more from him and discovered that he's like, (laughs) he's actually living the classical life by not being online. (laughs) (laughs) Proving that mystery is compelling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it could be interesting. The first chapter is called Nobility and Arete. And he brought up 
that concept. Mm-hmm. So, well, and then even, you know, I'm thinking about just norms and nobility, right? right? This is a, I bet, I bet we could find a thesis in there somewhere for an episode. I think so. Hey, we could have David Hicks on. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> I don't know if we'd be able to talk to him. Like, we could have him on. <laughs> It'd be like life goals. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Misty. This has been fun. Yep. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate it if you head on over and give us some reviews, especially if you are listening on iTunes or Stitcher. Don't forget, we, the Scalay sisters, I mean, have a big session at the Great Homeschool Convention in Cincinnati in April. It's called Carpe Librum, What to Read as a Classical Charlotte Mason Mom. This session is part of both the Classical and the Charlotte Mason tracks, and it is going to be a blast. We're going to let you ask us about books, and we're going to introduce you to all of our favorites. We're also bringing you some of our awesome Scalay Sisters logo stickers, which means you should show up on time because we don't know whether or not we're going to run out. Additional discussions on subsequent chapters of this book, Werner Jaeger's book, are going to be hosted in the Scalay Sisters forum. Joining is easy. Just go to www.scalaysisters.com join. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Boy, we better just <laughs> jump. <laughs> that is okay. Inner tenement is the. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs>